I want to read to you verses 8 through 11 of Isaiah 46. And we'll come back to these verses as after we, after we talk for a little bit. We're returning this evening to the study of our confession. Chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 to 10. Not 8 to 11, 8 to 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Did I put verse 11 up there? I'm going to read verse 11 too. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, I will do it. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your Word as we've heard it from Genesis and now from the prophet Isaiah, Lord, we need life, spiritual life mediated to us. And we know that life comes from your word. Sanctification comes from your word. So we pray that you'd sanctify us in the truth. We pray that you'd help us to understand uh, some of these uh, edges of the deep mysteries of your works. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Since we are jumping back into the confession, I want to recap just sort of quickly some of the, I guess you could say, foundational things that we need to remember as we read through our confession. We're looking at the first section of the confession, which James Renahan has entitled First Principles, which covers chapters 1 through 6. Chapters 1 through 6, first principles sort of establish the foundations of all that comes after that in the confession. And everything that comes after that will constantly reach back and pull from these first six chapters to explain what it is that we confess and believe as a church. Chapter 1, you'll remember, was a study of the Holy Scriptures, which we begin there because it is from the Holy Scriptures that we derive all special revelation from God. God has revealed Himself in nature, but in nature we don't have enough revelation to find God or to, to uh, discern salvation. And so He has to reveal Himself specially in His Word. And so chapter 1 deals with the Holy Scriptures. And chapter 2 is entitled, Of God and the Holy Trinity. Once we open the Bible and begin to read, we have to remember that the very uh, essence of Scripture and the goal of Scripture is to reveal to us the God of Scripture, to teach us who God is. Now, as we walk through that chapter, we studied 
many of the attributes of God. We just sort of spent week after week unpacking those attributes. Now, what I want to do is sort of recap five of those attributes. Just to remind you of where we've been. But this is not completely untethered from the rest of the confession, obviously. Nor is it untethered from what we're going to study tonight in chapter 3. I've chosen these five attributes specifically to remind you of because they are, uh, as we'll see, directly connected to chapter 3 of the confession. So you'll remember, hopefully, that we learned that God is eternal. And that means more than just God is really old or that God has existed for a long time. Eternal is rooted in the infinitude of God. God is without limit or boundaries with reference to all of His perfections. In every way possible and in every trait of His, respecting His essential being, God is perfect and He is infinite in all of those perfections, and none of that is in any way limited by the creatures called time and space. Both of those are creatures that God created. God is not limited in any way by time or space, and the fact that God is not limited by time is what we call eternal. It's more than just saying God is really, really old and He will be really, really old in eternity future. It is to say that God is not governed by time at all. God's eternal. You'll remember also that God is independent. God has no need for anything outside of Himself. No need of anything separate from Himself to sustain himself or anything that he does. He does not depend on any created thing. That includes time, that includes space. He has no need, he has no lack. He derives his existence from himself and therefore he relies on nothing outside of himself to be who he is. We could also say God is, when we say God is independent, we could also say God is not contingent. God is necessary. He's the only necessary being. Thirdly, remember that God is simple. Not simplistic. Not easy to understand. God is simple. He is one simple being. He has no parts. God is not made up of His attributes. He is His attributes. No single attribute of God is any less than God Himself. Or to use the title of a book, all that is in God is God. God doesn't have love. He is love. God doesn't have justice. He is justice. God doesn't tell the truth. He is truth, you see, and so on. He's simple. He is who He is. All of that summed up in His name, I Am. You remember that God is immutable. God can never be anything other than He is and has always been. He cannot be perfected in any way because that would assume that before that perfection He was imperfect. He cannot be reduced in any way because after that He would cease to be perfect. Because He is simple, because He has no moving parts, He cannot undergo any change of any kind whatsoever. It's not possible for God to change. He is immutable. That doesn't mean that He doesn't change. It means He can't. 
It's not possible for God to change. And you'll also remember, and this is one of the more prominent attributes of God that we remember most often, that God is sovereign. God is the sole, supreme ruler over all. God in all of His ways and all of His attributes and all of His actions is completely uninfluenced. He's not influenced for good by anything. He's not influenced for bad by anything outside of Himself. He's absolute in His authority. He's completely free from all influence outside of Himself. He is and He does. Now notice, if you have a copy of the Confession, and I, and I should have warned you so that you would have one, but chapter 2 of the Confession deals with God. Chapter 4 of the creation, or of the Confession, is entitled, Of Creation. Chapter 1, the Scriptures. Chapter 2, God. Chapter 4, creation. So here's the question that, that might exist in the minds of the, uh, the drafters of our confession as they're working through these things. How is it that we get from this eternal, independent, simple, immutable, sovereign to time and space the unfolding of the events in history, the constant ebb and flow of creaturely existence in the universe and on the earth. How do we go from God to creation? How do we go from the time when there was no time, when there was no thing except God, what one man has called the unnavigated ether before there was ever heard so much as the brush of an angel's wings. How do we go from that to in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Where's the bridge there? If you listen to Lloyd-Jones, he opens up the, the decrees of God and he, he makes this very point. As we begin to think about God in eternity and we're trying to list out the order of events, many people go from God in eternity to then God created. And he is right in, in pointing out you've skipped a step. How do we go from eternity, more specifically, to right now where we're sitting? You're in that seat where your where you're behind is fixed on that wooden pew. How do we go from God in eternity, all alone, all by Himself, to you sitting here right now? And we could ask the same question of every individual on the planet, whatever they're doing right now, every grain of sand, every star in the universe. How do we go from God and nothing else to God and everything else? Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect, unaltered, unhindered, blessed, eternal communion and nothing else to God and everything. Or an even better question might be how, or not how, but why. Why do we go from God to everything else? Or to simplify it even more, why anything? Why anything? You look at the confession, you ask, what bridges chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity and chapter 4 of creation? The answer for those who might be uh, numerically or mathematically uh, hindered is chapter 3 of God's decree. The eternal decree of God 
is the link between God in eternity and God with His creation. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, the eternal decree or of God's decree. Now, what comes into your mind when you hear the word decree? By definition, a decree is an official order issued by a legal authority. Synonyms of the word decree include edict, command, mandate, and proclamation. In order to get from God in eternity, in Himself, of Himself, by Himself, <coughs> by Himself, excuse me, for Himself, to history as we know it and creation and all that exists as it exists, there must be an official order issued from heaven, a divine fiat that all things begin to be and continue to be as they have been and are and will continue to be. There must be an eternal decree. Or perhaps we can approach it another way. This might come in handy if you're dealing with people who disagree with some of our beliefs. Do you believe that God from all eternity had an infallible knowledge of all things? Do you believe, essentially, do you believe that God is omniscient? Does God know everything? And did God know everything in eternity? Now, if you're orthodox you would say yes. There are people who claim to be Christians who are, who are heretics, but, and they would say no. But if you're orthodox and you claim to be a Christian and you ask, do you believe that God from all eternity had an infallible knowledge of everything? The answer is yes. So then the question is, how did He infallibly know all things before there was yet a single thing? How did He know it? Where did he get his infallible knowledge of all things? Knowing them perfectly, fully, and infallibly. Does God know all things because A, they were going to happen and he learned about their happening? If so, how is it that they were going to happen? How is it that they, were, that, that they would come to be, that they would exist? If you believe that all things were, again, quote, going to happen, and God learned that they were going to happen. If so, if that's what you believe, then when did God learn that these things would happen? When did God learn everything? There was no time, so that you can't point to a point in time and say, well, that's when God learned it. If He came to this understanding, was He omniscient before then? He, can't have, he couldn't have been omniscient before coming to that knowledge so then before that point, he was not God because he wasn't omniscient. All of this is, it falls into this classic halls of time idea. God looked down the halls of time. If God looked down the halls of time, where did these halls come from? Where did time come from? Before creation, these concepts didn't have existence. There was only God. Now some might object and say, yeah, but, but God knew because He's omniscient. And you would answer, exactly. 
God knew these things, all things, because they only had existence in the divine knowledge, in the divine mind. God knows all things because all things have their source in God, in the divine knowledge, in the divine will, or the divine counsel. <clears throat> and it's from this divine will, divine counsel, that the eternal decree sounds forth, bringing to pass all that is or ever will be. Again, it bridges the gap between God and nothing but God to God and everything that isn't God. They had to have an initial existence somewhere. That existence was in the divine knowledge, the divine will. Now let's look at the confession and then we'll look at some texts. I've called the first paragraph of this chapter the nature of God's decree. We'll just get to two paragraphs tonight. The nature of God's decree and then a necessary decree. The nature of God's decree, this first paragraph, is set forth in, from what I can tell in, in my reading, good, historically orthodox, positive definition. It answers some important objections by way of negation. And then it turns us to the glory of God as our ultimate goal and purpose. So first, we'll notice as we open up the nature of God's decree, a positive definition. It says, God hath decreed in Himself. God has issued an official order. Of course, we understand God does not have vocal cords. God did not blow air across His vocal cords, causing them to vibrate and produce sounds in to his own ear because there was nothing else. So when we talk about this order or this decree, it's not the way we think of shouting or speaking necessarily a decree, a sound. Notice how the confession puts it. He decreed in himself. This points us to the fact that God's decree is an imminent decree, not imminent. Christ's return is imminent. This is imminent I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, imminent decree. That is, His decree is of His essence. It's a part of Him. And because God is simple, there is not God and then God's will and God's desires and God's counsels and God's decree. God's knowledge and God's volition are not distinct from the person of God. They are who He is. His decree while it is an act, is still an act within God Himself. It is the act within God that connects God to creation, that goes from God to everything else. So it is considered an internal work of God, if you're reading um, some scholastic works. It is an, a work ad intra, in God, but it is connecting what is in God to what is out of God. It is an imminent decree. He hath decreed in Himself from all eternity. And so we see that the divine decree is eternal. Just like God is eternal. This has to be true because the decree is in Himself. It's of His essence. It's a part of who He is. God is the one and only eternal. Therefore, this decree is 
of the essence of God Himself. I would imagine if I wanted to try to make the connection to this eternal decree within God and the divine logos proceeding forth from the Father, there's probably a connection to be made there. That the decree is eternal means that there was not a before the decree or after the decree or a point in time when anybody could say, look, there God just decreed. Did you see it? It wasn't that way. It is an eternal decree. It's not limited in any way by time. It's a part of God. God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity. In other words, there was never a time when there was not an eternal decree. God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His will. Now that word by signifies to us the mode or the method of something when in re reality there isn't one. This is human language. We do things by means of or method or mode of something, but in God there is no mode or method. There is simply God. And so we're trying to make sense of the internal acts of God as they begin to connect to His external works and so I would call this an outward decree. It's an inward act, but it proceeds toward God's external works. But it's not external. It's in God. It comes by the most wise and holy counsel of His will. Now again, when you read the old writers on the doctrine of the eternal decree, they all agree that the words in Scripture like counsel and will and purpose and desire, when it refers to God, mind, they're all synonymous with the decree. It's the same thing. They're all one and the same in God. Now let me quote Richard Muller here. And this is technical. I've, in my notes, I've taken out the Latin language and, and bracketed in English because it would have, it, it is technical. But listen, he says, The eternal decree can be distinguished from the counsel of God only formally, not essentially. In other words, essentially, they're the same thing. The counsel, the decree, they're one and the same. But as we come to it and begin to study it in a formal way, we have to dissect between the counsel and then the decree moving out of God. He says, in a formal sense, the counsel is the divine decision and the decree is the actual willing or expression of that decision. So for us... Uh, we make decisions every day. Before we say, I want this for supper, that desire exists in our mind. I determine it in my mind, this is what I want, and then I say it. This is how we're dissecting the decree of God. God has a counsel, a desire, a will, and then He says it. But He doesn't really say it. He decrees it in Himself. It's an expression of that decision, again, still one in God, one with God with that word counsel, by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, that word counsel gives us the idea of deliberation. Right? When we think of a counsel, deliberation, 
thought and consideration, weighing the pros and the cons, reasoning together, let's get a group of people together and let's talk this out. And that's the point. It comes by the most wise and holy counsel of His will. The decree of God is the outward motion of the most wise and holy counsel of God's will, His volition. What He desires within, the decree is the outward motion of that desire. So again, let's dissect this. In eternity, God willed something would be. He decided, if we want to use human language, He decided what it would be. God wills, or He decides according to perfect, inexhaustible wisdom according to His will and desires. And then He decrees by the most wise and holy counsel of His will. You see, we, we're trying to make a process of something that, where there is no process, essentially. Again, this is not an end-time deliberation. It is an eternal perception of God's own desires flowing from His own wisdom. It's in God. It's what He desires. It is who He is. It's not something separate from God. It is God. Then it says, He does this by the most wise and holy counsel of His will freely. God decreed freely. As He wished... He decreed, uninfluenced by anything not God. So that God decreed and what God decreed are based solely upon God and nothing but God. The divine decree is in no way influenced for good or for bad by anything outside of God. He is absolute in His authority to decree and He is free in His decree from all influence outside of Himself. And so we could say this is a sovereign decree. It's free. He didn't look down the halls of time. He didn't take anybody into consideration. He didn't consider your feelings or your thoughts. He just decreed. And He done this freely and unchangeably. Unchangeably, the eternal decree of God, like God, is unable to be changed. Because it is within God, it's eternal. Just like God is eternal, since it is eternal, it has to be immutable. Just like God. So it is an immutable decree. So just as with God, there was no time when there was no decree, so there also was no time, nor can there be a time, when the decree is anything other than what it has etern eternally been. It's eternal and immutable. God's decree is fixed from all eternity. Now we could ask what kinds of things are included in this decree. When I say He, he desires uh, this to happen, or He decides that this would happen, or He wants this to happen, what kinds of things are we talking about here? And this is where we move into very distinctive Reformation or Reformed theology. This is where the Reformed capital R, as a heading, a title for a group of people holding to a particular system of theology, this is where we differ from just about everybody. What has God decreed? The confession says, all things whatsoever comes to pass. All things, exhaustive, whatsoever, intensive, comes to pass, has happened. Whatever is happening, whatever will happen, whatever has all things, everything. 
God has exhaustively, intensively included everything. Now let me summarize this. God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Now I've put on the screen a question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism or Keech's Catechism. They're, they're both the same word for word, but we're Baptists and so we say it's Keech's Catechism because we don't want to sound like we're stealing too much from the Presbyterians. But they're word for word the same. Here's the question, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And again, that's the shorter catechism. The longer catechism answers longer than that. Let me read to you a definition from A.A. A. Hodge. And I put this up here as well. The, the decree of God is His eternal, unchangeable, holy, wise, and sovereign purpose, comprehending at once all things that ever were or will be in their causes, conditions, successions, and relations, and determining their futurition. You ever seen that word? Futurition, determining that they will happen in the future. Now let me break that up. The decree of God is His eternal, unchangeable, holy, wise, and sovereign purpose. In that word purpose, we have intentionality. God has a direction that he, He's going. It's in His mind, it's fixed. He's determined in this purpose. And this purpose comprehends at once all things that ever were or will be. At once, again, that signifies infinitude, eternality, all things. It's exhaustive. And then he explains these all things. And this is where we, we need to just think about what all things mean. Because we begin to think of all things and we think, well, let me think about how many shirts I have and how many pairs of pants I have and how many shoes I have and how many socks I have. And our, our, our understanding of things is very small. All things, he says, in their causes, conditions, successions, and relations. So all things, and then you have in their causes. So the cause of everything that there is. In their conditions, the, the manner in which everything will happen or will be in their successions, that is, the events that will follow everything that will happen and, and the manner in which they will follow, and their relations. So all things and their specific relation, or the specific relation of every cause, every event, every following event will have with every other event and the manner in which they will relate to each other. All things is what he's getting at. So he fully, God, fully and infallibly knows all of that. His purpose comprehends. Remember that word comprehends? He wraps his mind around every bit of it. He comprehends it in his purpose. And then notice the last part of the definition. And this is 
this is the divine decree, and determining their certain futurition. So the decree is the determination that the counsel of His will regarding all things will most certainly come to pass in time and space. So let me summarize all of that. And I'm going to read this sentence because I can't say it. I might not even be able to read it. But to summarize this, from all eternity... Within the infinite mind of God, God purposed every event, every cause of every event, every condition of every event, and every condition of every cause of every event, every succeeding event and its cause and their conditions, and every relationship that every event with its cause and succeeding event would bear to every other event, cause, and succeeding event in the way that he would have it to be. All at once, he said, I like that. And he determined, and it will be that way. That's the eternal decree. Now, scriptural proofs. The text that we read from Isaiah is usually considered... The, the classic text on the subject that sets it forth the most clearly. And I'll read it again. Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. Now notice the language there, declaring the end from the beginning. That word declaring means to state emphatically and authoritatively. Another a synonym for that language is decree. He declared, what did he declare? The end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. From all eternity past into eternity future, or from everlasting to everlasting, everything he declared it will be. Now here we can begin to separate ourselves from others in the Orthodox tradition, looking at Lamentations 3, verses 37 and 38. There are many who would limit the decree to the good things, the positive things, the salvific things especially. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? So the Lord commands both good and bad. All things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance 
having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now we might come back to this text again next week. But notice how God is described. He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So the counsel of His will, which undergirds the decree, provides the framework for God's working in time. So we'd say, well, God works all things. He's working out all things um, for the good of those who love Him. Well, how, how does He do that? Is He just working one thing and then He sees what happens and He says, Ooh, I'll do this. And then He sees how that happens and He says, Ooh, I'll do this. What system is he following if he's following a system? The system is the counsel of his will. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, we go back to where we started and ask somebody sometime, why anything? Why? Why anything? The answer is God's decree. Next in this paragraph, we have some important negations because when you begin to say that everything that happens with each and every cause and ensuing event all find their origin in the will of God and in the decree of God, you can imagine there are going to be some objections. People are going to say things like, well, if that's the case, then God has to be the author of sin. Because if God didn't decree it, it wouldn't happen, right? The confession answers, yet... So as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. So we just deny it outright. We affirm first and foremost, God is not the author of any sin, nor does He have fellowship with any sin, while still affirming that God hath decreed from eternity all things whatsoever come to pass. They might object and say, well, sinful actions and events take place. And they would not have taken place apart from prior existence in the purposes of God. Which is true. But we would answer that a sinful action can be performed by morally culpable creatures. A sinful action which was decreed by God to take place. But that doesn't require that God made them do it or that God did it. God's not responsible for their sin. God can decree that a man be morally, a morally free agent. He can decree that an event take place. He can decree that they find their themselves, we, we could say, in the wrong place at the wrong time. He can decree that that sinful act certainly take place. And in the end, they are morally free creatures. They're the ones who sinned, not God. And God can have a perfectly upright and just reason for decreeing that a certain sinful act be carried out. That doesn't make Him sinful. That doesn't mean God forces the hand of any sinner. Others might object. If God has decreed Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, all things whatsoever come to pass, then, well, if that's the case, then we're pretty much just puppets on a string, doing whatever God had determined for us to do, playing out whatever role God had determined for us to play, apart from any actual will or volition of our own. 
In other words, when we think we're acting freely, we're just like puppets doing what God decreed would happen. The confession answers, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. In other words, God doesn't make any creature act against its will. God has never decreed that a fish climb or that a cat fly. He decrees that creatures act according to their will. That every creature act according to its own will and its own nature. And if that nature is that of a depraved sinner in Adam, whose thoughts and intentions of the heart are only evil continually, then we should expect that the sinner will act accordingly. They're going to act like what they are. And that's not God's fault. That's their fault. We're the sinners, not God. We doesn't do any violence to the will of the creature. He doesn't force anyone's hand. He doesn't make anyone act contrary to their nature. Another objection, if this is the case, if God has from all eternity degreed in Himself all things whatsoever come to pass, then it doesn't matter what I do, really, because God's already determined everything that's going to happen. So I can do whatever I want to, and God can't hold me responsible for that. He's going to do what He's going to do. The confession answers, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Remember, God decrees every event and every cause of that event. He decrees the end and the means to that end. He doesn't bypass second causes. He decrees second causes. So God decreed, by way of illustration, that water will freeze here at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you put water in the freezer, guess what it's going to do? It's going to freeze. Now in such an event where you do this, God decreed that you would run water and hold a cup under the water and because of the physics of water in a cup, the water fills up the cup and He decreed that you would put it into the freezer and that the water would then act according to its nature in the freezer. What's it going to do? It's going to freeze. If you take it out, what's going to happen? It's going to melt. Why? Because that's what happens when water reaches a temperature above 32 degrees. God decreed that that would take place, that that would be the case. He decrees the end and the means to that end. Freezing or melting is contingent on the temperature around the water. God decreed every event leading up to and following the freezing or the melting of the water. He decreed every law of nature, every law of physics, and He and everything works according to those laws. So we can't say, well, I'll just do whatever I want to and God's going to do what He wants to. No, we do what God commands and what God decrees will come about as we do what He commands. And we'll be held responsible for doing what He commands. We'll come back to that at the end. Then this particular paragraph ends with the goal and purpose of all this when we consider God's decree in which appears His wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing His decree. So when we consider God's decree, when we think about all of this, we see His wisdom. Every event, every cause of every event, every succeeding event, every connection 
that every event bears with every other event, all of it known, considered, weighed, and decreed in one indivisible point of time in the mind of God with no confusion, no distraction to God, and no glitches for all eternity. Nothing has yet happened in several thousand years of human history. Nothing has yet happened that where everything just messed up. Everything fell apart. Oh, the earth keeps spinning. The stars keep turning. The world keeps going. Everything is working just as it has always been decreed to work. That's His wisdom. And we see His power. Nothing in all creation or in eternity can affect God's decree in the least. It's fixed. It's done. And we see His faithfulness because for eternity He is settled and determined to uphold with certainty every aspect of His decree. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. We see His wisdom. We see His power. We see His faithfulness. In the second paragraph, very quickly, we have what I've entitled a necessary decree. And, what, and by that I mean it's not contingent. If something is contingent, it depends on something else in order to exist. If something is necessary, it is not dependent on anything to exist. And everything else is dependent upon it to exist. The eternal decree of God is necessary. Because God is independent, His decree is independent. The divine decree is unaffected by anything outside of God Himself. Notice what paragraph 2 says. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, which He does because He's omniscient, He knows everything, yet He hath not decreed anything because He foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. In other words, confessionally, as a church we take the united position that God never looked down the halls of time. Because there were no halls, there was no time, there were no events. There was no existence of anything outside of the infinite mind of God. So He didn't look and say, well, I'm going to decree that Adam walk in the garden. And Adam's walking and, oh, he stumps his toe. And so God says, well, I'm going to decree that he it doesn't break his toe. It just hurts it. And so Adam stumps his toe and he's hopping on one foot because it hurts and he begins to fall down. And oh, no, his head's going to hit that rock that's on the ground. Well, God says, well, we have to go back in time and move that rock so that Adam doesn't, doesn't hit his head. That's not how it worked. There, there wasn't conditional. No part of God's eternal decree is based on or contingent upon anything other than the other various aspects of the decree. God decree, the decree establishes everything and the decree is dependent upon nothing. God didn't start and then begin to work with specific outcomes of various events. They were all one single event. Now see, we can't understand that. We can't, all we know is a sequence of moments in time. I do this and this happens. I mash the gas, the accelerator on the car, and it goes faster. That's all we know is a list of events. With God, there is no list. It is. He decreed all of it. 
So how do we apply this? Quickly, thank Him for His eternal goodness. In everyday life, all that was determined in the eternal counsel of God and fixed forever in the eternal decree. Everything. Every, every, good, every good blessing that comes to us. Every good thing you have. Think about a blessing. Look at your children. God from eternity said, I want that. I want that person to have that child. I want that person to have that meal. I want that person to have that pair of shoes. Thank Him for His goodness. Number two, trust Him in His eternal providence. Here we, we consider bad things. Is it not from the mouth of God that good and bad come? Yes. So in bad things, we remember God has decreed this from all eternity. In our sanctification, God has decreed hardships and trials and afflictions to come for our sanctification. He decreed it from all eternity. It's not a glitch. It's not a wrench in the gears. It's moving just as it's supposed to move all the time. Thirdly, use the means that God has given to accomplish the ends that God has commanded. If God has commanded that you be holy, that you seek or pursue, chase after the holiness without which no one will see God, and He has given clear commands, means to that holiness, then use them. Use the means God has given to accomplish the ends God has commanded. Number four, the opposite of that would be don't try to use God against Himself to justify your actions. Don't disobey God and say, well, then if God wants blank to happen, then He can do it. You see this all the time when you get into the birth control debate. Well, I'll just do what I'm going to do, and if God wants to make a baby, I mean, God can do anything He wants to. He can make a baby. The divine decree is not your rule for life. You don't govern what, govern what you do based on the divine decree. Why? Because you don't know the divine decree. All we know is the revealed will of God. We do what God has commanded. Let Him do His job. He decrees the end, and He decrees the means to that end. So don't try to use God against God to justify your actions. Every time you begin to think that way, just remember, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. For is it not written that His angels will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone? That was the devil tempting. And he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You do what you're commanded to do and let God take care of His business. Don't use God to to, against God to justify your actions. And fifthly, as we consider next week, think about your salvation in light of God's eternal decree. Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, then in eternity, from all eternity... God has decreed in Himself by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably your eternal salvation. He did not do any violence to your will. He didn't force you against your will. He just changed it. He didn't save you based on any contingency or condition that you met prior to that. Consider your salvation. The topic of chapter 3, paragraph 1, begins with God's decree, 
But paragraph 7 says the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination. Predestination regards specifically the salvation of elect sinners. Confessionally speaking and biblically speaking, the Reformed doctrine of predestination flows from our doctrine of God. I told some of the guys this Friday night. The Reformed, with a capital R, those who fall in that line, this is how we reason. This is who God is, therefore this is what God does. And I've said it before, I think a lot of times people think that when we get together, when Calvinists get together, we just have a sermon on predestination every week. We just talk about election every week and we just... Um, because that's usually what comes into the minds of those who disagree with our theology. We don't start with predestination and election. We start with God. God is eternal. God is simple. God is immutable. God is unchangeable. God is sovereign. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. From that, we have to determine God has decreed everything all things whatsoever come to pass. We start there. Okay then, what are some things that come to pass? I got saved by God's free and sovereign grace. That has to be included in the divine decree. Therefore, God must have predestined before the foundation of the earth that I would be brought to Himself, that I would be converted. So very often I think, we, and we need to understand this as we consider our salvation and we move into next week, people usually don't have as much of a, uh, a problem with our doctrine of salvation as they do our doctrine of God. So we have a, when you get into these discussions, talk to them about God. When they want to argue about predestination and election, ask them, why anything? Why anything? Let's talk about God. Did He look down the halls of time? Who made those halls? At what point in time did he look? Usually their disagreement is not so much with our, our soteriology, but our, our theology proper. Let's pray, and then we'll stand and we'll sing the song that we learned this morning. Whatever my God ordains is right.